so we are in Second Peter, and last week I think we finished chapter 2. So he's been talking in chapter 2 about people who have come in to their congregations. These people are destructive, and I suspect some of them know they're destructive, and some of them don't. All of them are claiming to be believers, claiming to be messianic. And Peter, of course, is writing to a Jewish community, or a Hebrew community. I don't know if they're Jews, since he's in the diaspora, could be lost tribes. But anyway, he's writing to Hebrews, and he's warning them about people who will come in amongst them and will sow false doctrine among them. We aren't really terribly sure what the particular problems are, although in chapter 3 here, when we get to it, we'll get some clues. One of the characteristics of what they're sowing is sensuality. So he goes through a big deal paralleling Jude about Sodom and Gomorrah, about the world before the flood, and about the angels that are trapped in the center of the earth, basically. And in all cases, it has to do with sensuality or unauthorized use of the reproductive organs. He's talking about the same kind of sensuality here. And one of the things that we've said lots and lots of times is that one of the chief hooks of paganism is sex. Because what paganism does is gets rid of all of the prohibitions and fences that God puts around human sexuality. I was listening to Ron Dart today, and he was talking about the law, and he's in Romans, slightly different perspective, but it's a good one, where he says the law is very complicated. And the reason it's complicated is because it covers how you should behave in order to have a good life. And life is very complicated. So in order to cover all of the things that you need to stay away from or some of the things you need to do, it has to be fairly complex. The point he was making is it is not the case that God is up there with a cosmic smite button looking for someone who's a drunkard or an adulterer or whatever. It's that the law is self-enforcing which is to say, if you go around violating Torah, the consequences of living poorly will eventually catch up with you. And so the example he uses is if you get drunk and you drive drunk and you get into a car accident, and in that accident you lose your arm, and you realize that you've made a horrible mistake and you repent and you decide that you're never going to drink and drive again, God will be happy to forgive you. But God won't replace your arm. The consequence to violating the law is whatever the consequence is. And God doesn't go around rectifying those things. God simply forgives you and lets you move on and learn from that. But you live the rest of your life without an arm. So I'm not sure exactly what the problem here is other than it seems to involve sensuality. And one of the things about God's take on sensuality is it's designed 
to enhance community. It's designed to enhance the relationship between men and women. It's designed for the protection of children. It's designed for a lot of stuff. And when you relax those standards and you go about doing willy-nilly whatever you want, what you wind up with is pathologies in your society. And we're seeing that today in our society. The idea that anybody can do anything to anybody anytime they want to and no harm, no foul, has resulted in terrible harm to the societies and to the individuals involved. So, as I say, we don't know precisely what the heresies are that are being brought in by these folks, but Peter is not impressed. And I don't know how Peter found out about it, is the other thing. Because, as you'll say in chapter 3 here, this is the second letter I am writing to you. And before that, he refers to these folks who have come in to the congregation as dogs returning to their own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So he doesn't have a lot of uh, respect for these folks, whatever their problem is. Now, what we may be able to do is glean some more information about what the problems are in chapter 3. So, starting in 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Okay, one of the things that that tells you is there are two letters. We've got both of them. And the one was explicitly to Hebrews, so we can assume that this is also to Hebrews, which I have been doing all through this. So this is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through our apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Well, we've been talking about those people up till now. And what he's reminding them of is that the prophets have talked about the fact that there are going to be scoffers and there are going to be heretics and, and so forth. This is by way of reminder, not by way of telling them anything new, which he explicitly says. The comment was talking about scoffers in chapter 3 seems to be a break and on to something else from what we have been talking about in chapter 2. And I am going to suggest one of the things that they are talking about is, well, I know what Moses says about human sexuality, but you don't have to do that anymore. And there, there are a couple reasons that it could be, as I think I've said. One of the pathologies in sects of Christianity turns out to be sexual free-for-alls. So people read the gospel and the letters of Paul in the context of the Torah is done away with. So that means anything now goes. And don't get me wrong, Christianity recognizes groups like that as heretical. I'm not suggesting that mainline Christianity approves of these things, they don't. But what happens is people grab chunks of the New Testament, take it to mean that the law is abrogated, and take that to mean that we get to do anything we want. And very often that expresses itself sexually. So the idea that these people are coming in and they are advocating sensuality could be scoffing at the law of Moses. 
In other words, are you guys still following that old Torah? Don't you know that that's been done away with? And now we are free, and that freedom allows us to do whatever we want. So I'm suggesting scoffing is the mechanism that these folks are using to lure people away from Moses and into sensuality. I see this as a continuation, that these people are scoffing, and the thing that they're scoffing at is the law and the prophets. So back to verse 3 then. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, okay, that's what scoffers bring, following their own sinful desires. And again, we have had up in two, willful, following their own desires and so forth. Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Chuck Missler has an interesting teaching on this. That one of the things I heard decades ago, and it sort of stuck with me, the history of the world is not uniform. There are catastrophic events that change everything. Anybody familiar with the term black swan? Historically, if you are European, the only thing you ever see are white swans because that's all there are in Europe. And it wasn't until people got to Australia that they discovered that there are, in fact, black swans. So a black swan event is something that you could not have predicted given what you know today. So if you're a European living in Europe or England, you would have no way of predicting that there could be black swans because nothing in your data set indicates that that's possible. So a black swan event is an event that happens that cannot be predicted from your existing information. Sort of like turkeys in a farm get fed three meals a day or how many meals a turkey eats, I don't know how many they eat, but gets fed every day and everything is fine until we have the black swan event of Thanksgiving. And there's nothing in their experience, nothing in anything that indicates to them that the farmer is anything but benign. Feeds them every day, makes sure they got water, protects them from the coyotes, just takes really good care of them until Thanksgiving. And then all of a sudden, everything changes for the turkey. That's what a black swan event is. So anyway, the point is, the history of the earth, looking back, is full of those events. The flood was one. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was another one. I mean, the idea that all of a sudden fire and brimstone would come down from heaven and destroy a couple of cities wasn't anything that anybody would have been able to predict. So the idea that everything is the same since the beginning of creation is not correct. It is factually wrong. And Peter uses the example of the flood to demonstrate that. The teaching that Missler gave was, 
and I kind of like this, I don't know that it's exactly technically correct, but it's pretty close. Evolution depends on an unbroken string of change and progress over millions of years in order to be intellectually justified. Now, what do I mean by that? The probability of um, immaterial atoms being arranged into amino acids and then proteins and so forth and becoming life, the probability of that happening randomly is so close to zero as to be indistinguishable. For example, we do billions and billions and billions of experiments every year that deny evolution. Do you know what they are? Canned goods. You put food in a can and you sterilize it and seal it, and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of trials, not one of them evolves. Think of all the cans of peas, dog food, soup, all those cans in the world. And what have we got, seven billion people? So there are many billions of cans of food extant in the world. Yet there's no recording of any of them evolving life, even though they are composed of organic material. In other words, they're a whole lot closer to being alive than rocks were at the beginning. In other words, you've already got amino acids in there, you've already got all of the components of life, because if it was meat or vegetables, it was alive at one time. So everything that you need for life exists in a can of food. Yet we depend on the fact that it never evolves, and it doesn't. And what we've done is in a 10-year period, we have done an experiment with billions and billions and billions of separate trials. What the evolutionist says is, okay, we only need one success. And so what we do is we postulate billions and billions and billions of years, and we then assert that in that time, it is probable that there was one success. And that success built on itself, and we now have life. So in order for evolution to work, you have to have a universe that is billions and billions and billions of years old in order to get past the fact that the probability of it happening spontaneously is so close to zero that it wouldn't happen. But anyway, Missler's point is, in fact, the universe is not uniform. It has not been going steadily. It is full of black swan events. He's saying the same thing here. Peter's not talking about evolution. I'm simply, that's a digression on my part. I, I remember that teaching from Missler from 20 years ago, I imagine. But I thought it was kind of interesting because he goes to this passage and says that right there is big evidence against evolution. What Peter is talking about, contrary-wise, is the fact that the prophets predict the coming of the Messiah. I don't know whether the scoffers are messianic or not. We know that the addressees of the letter are messianic. But what the scoffers are saying is Isaiah, Moses, all of these people have been predicting the coming of a Messiah. Where is he? 
And furthermore, I would suspect, because it's a Jewish belief as opposed to a Christian belief, that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. In fact, that's one of the reasons that Orthodox Jews don't believe that this Jesus guy was the Messiah, because he didn't fulfill those prophecies. He didn't restore Israel. In fact, Israel got sanded off flat after he left. So these scoffers are coming in, and they may be scoffing in terms of, wait a minute, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, all of these folks predict the coming of a Messiah, but nothing ever changes. Much like scoffers about Christianity today. Well, gee, the Bible predicts that he's coming, but it's been 2,000 years. What's he doing? So the idea of scoffers who scoff at our religion and scoffers who are scoffing in the time of Peter is nothing ever changes. And what they mean in parentheses is nothing has ever changed in my lifetime. Because most people's time horizon starts when they're old enough to remember stuff. And that's their experiential time horizon. So if it's never happened to me, how do I know it'll ever happen? And furthermore, it doesn't happen historically. The point here is you can look at the promise of his coming in two different ways. The way much of Christianity looks at it is this guy, Yeshua, died, rose from the dead. He said he was coming back. Where is he? That's one way to look at it. Now, I don't think that's a particularly persuasive way to look at it because at the time of the writing of this letter, we are not yet at 70 AD. So he's only been gone at most 35 years or so. So I'm not sure that is a correct reading of it, but it might be, certainly might be. But the other way to look at it, of course, is the prophets going clear back to the Torah who are predicting this messianic king never shows up. And so that's the way I take it, is they're looking for the messianic king. And depending on whether or not these scoffers are messianic believers, they could be referring to the second coming, or they could be saying, this guy Jesus didn't do it. And we still haven't seen the Messiah. And as I say, this business of being formed out of water and stored up for fire and all those kinds of things certainly is scriptural. Formed out of water is Genesis 1, and then destroyed by the flood, of course, is Genesis 9. And then you have, it will be destroyed by fire, is Revelation, among other things. It's also Yeshua, what he's talking in Matthew 24, I think, talks about it too. And what the scoffers are saying is nothing ever changes, and it's unlikely that anything will change. And so what Peter is saying, well, yeah, it did change. It changed for Noah, and it will change in the future. So he says they're, they're both historically wrong and prophetically wrong. We're all the way down to verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord 
One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So one day is as a thousand years. One of the things that happens with that is people will talk about that passage to try and finesse six days of creation. They get faked out by all the science and so forth. And I don't want to look like a fool, but wait a minute, it says here one day is a thousand years. So instead of being six days, it was really 6,000 years. Does that make you feel better? Ooh, ooh, huh? That's one of the things that people try and do to finesse the creation story when they're embarrassed by being a young earth creationist. And by the way, there's also a really good argument for old earth creationism, and that has to do with time dilation. And when we get to Genesis 1 this coming year, I will present that to you. Basically, there's an Orthodox Jew, I don't remember what his name is, but he ran the time dilation equations taking into account the size of the universe and showing that from the point of view of the Creator, God, it's six days, but from our point of view, it is about 14 billion years. And the physics equations work out quite nicely. I'll take you through that when we get to Genesis 1. But understand that trying to stuff six days into 6,000 years isn't any better than trying to do it in six days, okay? So you haven't really gained anything by saying, oh, maybe it was 6,000 years, huh? huh? Does that seem more reasonable? Comment was, the days of 1,000 years can be used more profitably or more usefully in, in prophecy, and I completely agree with that. It is my belief that this universe that we are inhabiting is going to be destroyed 7,000 years from the creation. In other words, that's when the new heaven and the new earth are going to kick into existence. And if you look at the pattern of creation, you have six days of creation and then God rests. We are coming up to the 6,000 year after creation, according to the Hebrew calendar. And there's some, there's some herky-jerky that goes on about 250 years and I haven't paid any attention to it other than the fact that I know it exists. There's some controversy about the accuracy of the rabbinic calendar, and the difference is 250 years. And other than that, I don't know anything about it. So the way that would work is we are coming up on the 6,000th year. 5780 is where we are on the Hebrew calendar there now. So it is my belief do with this whatever you like, that that will be the thousand-year reign. And then at the end of the thousand-year reign, as it says in Revelation, everything's going to be watered up, and we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. Now, where that actually happens on day and date, I have no idea, and I'm not going to try and predict. I do believe, based on Revelation, that the Messiah will arrive on Rosh Hashanah. That's the Hebrew holiday where nobody knows the day or the hour. 
but I don't have any idea, Rosh Hashanah, what year. The comment was, Rosh Hashanah doesn't exist. It's Yom Teruah in the Bible, and that's the day of the trumpets. And as you know, at the seventh trump in Revelation, he will touch down. And that, of course, correlates with the seventh trumpet where Joshua takes on Jericho. History is prophecy, so I think that's what's going to happen. I understand. He's not going to consult with me first. He's not going to ask me whether it's time yet or not. So verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's a different translation than some of you might have. Another translation is burned up. And by the way, the difference is in the Greek manuscripts. Texas Receptus has burned up. The majority text, which ESV is taken from, is exposed with a note. Some have burned up. I like exposed. And the reason I do is go back to Genesis and remember when Cain killed Abel. What did God say to Cain? The earth cries out with the blood of your brother. So there's all sorts of stuff that has been done on the earth that is covered up, if you will. For example, going back to the Exodus, the first of the plagues was the plague of blood because the Egyptians had thrown the baby Hebrew boys into the Nile, which means that there's no evidence. they just gone. There's no little graves. There's nothing you can go visit. It's like they never lived. So what God does is exposes the fact that the River Nile was used to cover up the deaths of these Hebrew children. So the idea that when everything is finally burned up, all of the stuff that has happened will be exposed, I very much like that metaphor. As I read Revelation, at the end of the thousand years, Satan gets turned loose and starts a rebellion against God, turns the nations against God, and they attack Israel. Yeshua will then destroy them. And at the end of that, this creation will be destroyed, rolled up like a scroll, and there will be then a new heaven and a new earth. And it will be destroyed by fire, according to Revelation. And when it says here in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Now, Yeshua is going to do his millennial reign on this earth, the one we're dealing with now. So this one that gets turned into crispy critters has got to be after that. That's all I'm thinking. So verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people are you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. 
But according to this promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's straight out of Revelation 21. I mean, I say that straight out of Revelation 21. It, Peter and John are both writing about the same thing, and they are writing about it the same way. John writes about it in a lot more detail. He just sort of, oh, by the way, we all know this. One other thing before we go on to the final salutations. Back in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. One of the things that I believe, and in fact I sort of led off with it tonight, the Torah, the law, is designed to teach us how to live well, how to live successfully, how to form good communities, all that. The Torah is very complicated because life is very complicated. In other words, it takes a complex law to cover all of the things that are possible with humanity. And it is inevitable, since we are imperfect, that we are going to periodically not do things the best way. The Torah defines what the best way is, and all of us periodically from time to time in different areas do things in a way that I would describe as suboptimal or sinful. We all do. This is not a surprise to God. And he has designed repentance into his system. He has designed it so that when we fall short, we are able to stop, turn around, go the other way, and if we are in relationship with God, be forgiven. The thing that he doesn't forgive is a breach of relationship. So take, for example, Adam and Eve. He says, if you eat that tree, you'll die. And as Brian was fond of saying, he does not say, if you eat that tree, I will kill you. He says, if you eat that tree, you'll die. And so when they ate of that tree, what that was, was they didn't believe him. Because if I were to pick a bush and I were told that that is poison, I am not going to go up there and do experimental gastronomy on it. I'm not going to eat it if I believe it's poison. And what the first couple was persuaded was that God wasn't telling them the truth. So what they did is they broke relationship with God. They quit trusting him. They didn't believe what he said. Because if they'd actually believed what he said, they never would have eaten it. Well, it's the same thing with Torah. Periodically, our lightning fast minds will convince us that, well, that doesn't look so bad. And we'll try it. And the thing that happens is very often the consequences don't catch up with us. And you remember I said at the beginning, God is not sitting up there with a cosmic smite button. Ooh, you just stole a sheep. Zap! That doesn't happen. The consequences of stealing a sheep are when the owners of the sheep finally catch up with you. So the law is self-enforcing. So what God has built in here is the ability for us to learn by making mistakes. 
to learn by screwing up. And any management book that you read will say that the more people have screwed up and kept going, typically the more wisdom they have because they know, ooh, that's hot, I won't do that anymore. And you learn. And so what he's done is he's built repentance into the system so that you have room to learn and you are able to learn from your mistakes and you're able to recover. And as long as you stay in relationship with him, he will forgive those mistakes. But as I say, he will not sew your arm back on. You got to live with the consequences of your screw up. But you can maintain a good relationship with God through all of that. Moving on to verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So again, he says you're waiting for the return. You're waiting for the reformation of all things. That's what he's been talking about. And he's saying, while you wait, be diligent. Do your best to be walking righteously without spot or blemish, and do your best to be at peace, especially with each other. That last part is mine, not his. 15. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So what he's saying here is Paul is sound. No problem with Paul. However, one of my favorite things is I sort of wish God had picked somebody who could write better, or at least write in shorter sentences that I can understand. It takes a lot to unpack Paul. But one of the things that we've got in this letter is you've got people who are coming in and are bringing in destructive heresies. I give it as my guess, just a guess, that these people may have read and misinterpreted Paul. Or, put another way, may have read Paul and deliberately misinterpreted Paul, which is easy to do. Because if you don't sit down and do a lot of analysis, just sort of gloss over it, Parts of Paul look like he's talking against Torah. He's not. So it is entirely possible that what you have is a conflict between Peter and Paul. Because remember, he says here, our brother Paul also wrote to you. So they have at least one letter by Paul in addition to a letter by Peter. Two letters now by Peter. So it is entirely possible that the problem in this church has come from a willful misunderstanding of Paul. It's sort of like the book of Galatians, where Paul plants a church in Galatia, and then some Jews from the home office show up and say, oh, wait a minute, you neglected all this stuff about Moses. Moses says you got to be circumcised, says all this kind of stuff. Paul then writes back and says, no, 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 no. You guys are Gentiles. You're not Jews. You don't need to be circumcised. You're already members of the kingdom of God. Accept that and move on. So there's a lot of confusion out there. Some of it, as Peter says, deliberate confusion with Paul's letters. 
So pick it up at 16 and a half. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So notice there's two kinds of people here. There are people who are ignorant, and I will suggest much of Christianity with whom I disagree with respect to the Torah. I believe the Torah is still in effect and it's useful and all that kind of stuff. Much of Sunday Christianity does not believe that. They don't want to have anything to do with it. I disagree with them. Good people, not looking down on them, I just disagree. And part of the reason for that is they have been taught by their teachers who were taught by their teachers who were taught by their teachers and so they have been taught by people who they trust that this stuff has been done away with. And at some point, either somebody ignorant or somebody unstable has misinterpreted Paul and has therefore launched a new branch of Christianity that goes off in a direction that I believe is incorrect based on a misinterpretation of Paul, either deliberate or in ignorance. Comment was the scary part is they twist to their own destruction. And that goes back to the riff that I have been doing all evening, which says that the Torah is instructions for how the redeemed shall live to have a good community and a good life. If you deliberately don't do that, what's going to happen is you're going to have a community or a life that is going to be full of unnecessary trouble. And so I see destruction in that light to the extent that somebody unstable has made the twist. In other words, somebody's done it deliberately. I really want to do away with this because there's this sin here I'm really liking and I want to go do that one. So we'll read Paul's so that that's okay now. So those people are in rebellion and sin as opposed to the ignorant who are living suboptimal lives because they aren't following God's advice. Either one can lead to destruction. Verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So it's interesting that he calls them lawless, those who don't follow Torah. Remember before we had the ignorant and the unstable, two different categories of people. And what he's saying is if you are carried away with the error of lawless people, you will lose your own stability, which means that you will find sinful things attractive and will do them either out of perverseness or ignorance. 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua Messiah. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen.